Good morning. Ooh, that really is muted. Okay. Uh, it's a joy to be with you all. There's not a shelf there. Okay. I got to come last fall as well, and it's just always a blessing and an honor to walk alongside the Covenant community, even for just, you know, 20 minutes on a Monday morning. So thanks for having me. Uh, as Steph mentioned, I've worked and studied in the general field of counseling as well as other things for most of my professional life. And when you study a subject like counseling or psychology or work in one of those realms, or maybe you've had this experience, just mention you're taking a psych class, people get all shifty around you. And they start saying things like, oh, are you analyzing me right now? And you can feel the uncomfortability come out of them, like maybe my weird is showing and maybe you actually can see that. Um, the uncomfortability, I think, begins to exercise itself in jokes. You may have heard this one, careful, <laughs> don't go too deep, you never know what you might find down there. Because truthfully, there's fear that looking inward can be dangerous, and there's this sort of underlying don't do too much self-reflection because you might get hurt. I have at times responded to this with compassion, you know, and a gentle laugh back, and at other times with just an eye roll. But I've become more and more thoroughly convinced that self-reflection is a necessary part of life, something that is crucial to just being human while following Jesus. Is it dangerous? Is it risky? Well, yeah, but in a completely necessary sort of way. And you'll get hurt? Well, you'll be hurt a lot worse and hurt others if you don't. So it was very ironic this spring when I took a morning early in January to reflect on 2020, and I did indeed actually hurt myself, literally. I wrote too much, I strained this like tendon thing in my elbow right here, and I had it on ice for an entire day. And if I move it the wrong way now, I still feel it. Apparently there is too much self-reflection that can be done and it can actually hurt you. But as I went through that exercise, dangerous though it was of reflecting on 2020, I discovered something odd that I'd like to talk about today. I grew. I read back over my writing from last year, and as I read, it was clear. I could see me changing. And then I looked at my heart in the here and now, and I could actually see the fruit. And I was totally shocked. I'd had no idea. In a year that felt like nothing happened, because we were all putting so many parts of our lives on hold or losing opportunities, I grew. In the dead year of 2020, that was what is happening in our world, we're all just trying to make it through to the end of this, what does the future hold, somehow I grew. So it caused me to ask the question, why am I so surprised? What did I think spiritual growth looked like? And is it possible that spiritual growth is different than what I expected? And this is often the case. Our expectations for things in the Christian life, like spiritual growth, are so often shaped not by God's word, but by all sorts of completely unexamined assumptions from all sorts of places, hence the need for self-reflection. Because we take those unexamined assumptions and we tend to just sort of subtly lay them over God's word like a piece of colored plastic, merging the two into one unpull-apartable heretical reading of scripture. So I started thinking, what had I assumed that spiritual growth would look like? 
well, for starters, that I would at least be aware it was going on and that I would feel, you know, at least somewhat noticeably different. And maybe your assumptions are similar. And a way to get at that question of what do I think spiritual growth looks like is to ask, well, what do I think it means to be spiritually mature? Well, you're stronger, right? I mean, you've figured it out a bit more. You're more holy. You probably sin less. Or the spiritually mature are those who are knowledgeable. They're sure of what they think. They're thoughtful. They just, they just always get it, whatever it is in the moment. Or they're authentic. They're the honest ones, the transparent ones, the real ones. Or their lives reflect kingdom values really clearly. They work for that nonprofit, or they started it, or they work along the underserved, the oppressed. And so your concept of growth will reflect those things. I'm growing when I have less sin, feel stronger, grow more thoughtful opinions, can be more real, do meaningful missional work that aligns with my gifts. Now, any and all of those things can be evidence of spiritual growth, things that the spiritually mature do, but they are not definitions of spiritual maturity. And they do not give a helpful pathway for our spiritual growth. So this morning I'd like to talk a little bit about what spiritual growth really does look like as opposed to our own assumptions about it. And my hope is that as we do, you'll examine your own assumptions. What are you bringing to the idea of spiritual growth that you overlay on the Bible and baptize as truth? And secondly, I simply hope you'll be encouraged by the biblical picture because it's different and it's unexpected from what we think it will be. This is an invitation to embrace the unusual nature of spiritual growth and God's work in us. And we'll look at four characteristics of spiritual growth and then end by briefly talking about what to do in light of that. So the first characteristic of spiritual growth we'll look at is that it is as varied as we are people. It is not one size fits all. It does not have the same method, timeline, or pattern in everyone's life. And in fact, it may not have the same anything at all. But our expectations for spiritual growth tend to get set by the stories we hear, which then become normative for growth. For example, you may have heard the phrase, a Damascus Road experience, referencing Paul's dramatic conversion on the road to Damascus. And often the speakers we tend to hear from have really big stories to tell. They're dramatic. They're interesting. And without meaning to, we normalize this and say, ah, it's when the big things happen that we change. And we know change can come in little ways, like we know that, but secretly we crave and expect the big moments, moments when things were one way and then suddenly totally different. And we quietly conclude things about the nature of change, when it will happen, how dramatic it will feel, and so on. And our experience does sometimes back this up. You know, I went to that camp or that retreat or conference and for the first time I understood the gospel or I finally understood my own heart. But in so doing, we not only miss that these experiences were often simply the conclusion to a work being prepared long before, we also take Paul's short experience on the road to Damascus and bend it into the paradigm for change blind to seeing. One day a persecutor of the church, the next its greatest orator. But there are other storylines in scripture as well. Let's take a look at one of the other fathers of the church, Peter. Peter's timeline and change look really different from Paul's. In Matthew 14, for example, he volunteers, just think about that, volunteers in terror 
to join Jesus as he walks on the water in the middle of a storm. And he actually does it. That, that's pretty incredible. That's a big moment. Two chapters later, he's the one to make the statement that Jesus really is the Christ, also incredible. And yet the very next story we have about Peter is when he privately draws Jesus aside to rebuke him. Think about that language, rebuke. Not clarifying question, not present an alternative, but rebuke. He's seen this same Jesus heal hundreds of diseases, raise someone from the dead, feed the thousands, walk on water, and he's still willing to rebuke the man he just said was the Messiah of God. And that's not the only time he does that. The night before the crucifixion, he declares with gusto that he will go with Christ even to death. And when Jesus says, no, you won't, you'll disown me, he argues with him and tells him, the one true God, you're wrong. Paul has this one experience, and it's huge, and it's life-changing. Peter lives with Jesus for three years and has lots of life-altering crazy experiences with him and is just all over the place. So which is it? How will God work in our lives to bring about spiritual growth? Their paths are so different. And this is the problem we often run into. We're so ready to compare. We're so ready to set the trajectory of our spiritual growth based on the norm we've made of someone else's. And the thing is, Jesus made clear that this was not what we should do, again, in the life of Peter. When Jesus reinstates Peter after the resurrection, he ends that whole reinstatement with one simple phrase, follow me. Why? That should sound familiar. It's an echo back to when he first called Peter. It's a way of saying, let's begin again. The words I first called you with, I say again now, like a reassurance of sorts. But right after this dramatic reinstatement, Peter turns around and sees John following them. And he says, Lord, what about this man? He wants to know about John and what will happen with him. And Jesus' response is amazing. It doesn't rebuke exactly, but it is very clear. And it shuts down the line of questioning that Peter's going down. Jesus says, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Your job is not to wonder what his path will be, Peter. Your job is not to compare your own future to his. Your job is to follow me where I am leading you. Because the path of spiritual growth in God's work in our lives is not one size fits all. It is as varied as the many stories that God writes and weaves into his grand tale of redemption. The second thing about it is that it is often very quiet and therefore unnoticed. It is not always obvious, seen, or felt. In fact, it often begins or even finishes or even does the heaviest lifting long before we're aware it's even happening. And sometimes it's only noticeable after it's done. And this quiet small work is so very in character for God. This is how he advances his kingdom in general, not just in our hearts. Times when nothing is happening, we think, is when he quietly, unseen, is working underground. Think of how many of the biblical stories involve long periods of waiting, of quietness, of nothing happening. Periods of waiting which we breeze over because we have the next chapter just waiting for us. We don't have to feel the weight of that waiting, so to speak. We just read five years later and go on. But Jesus, for instance, did not begin his earthly ministry 
until he was 30. That's a decade older than most of you. And I mean, let's not get crazy. 30's still young. Okay, 30's still young. But at 12, at 12, he was already schooling the priests and the scribes. He was ready. Why didn't he start then? He waited 18 more years until he started teaching and healing and bringing the kingdom. He waited. Or Paul, the greatest evangelist of the first century, who Luke says is proving Jesus is the Messiah within days of his conversion. And what does God do with him? He puts him in prison for years. Why would you put your best public speaker in isolation? But it was in prison that he wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, which are God's very words for millions of believers for all eternity. Turns out God was working in the quiet loneliness of Paul's jail cell when nothing was happening. We could go on and on. You know the stories. Joseph languishing in prison, Abraham and Sarah waiting over 20 years for the already promised child, that very quiet Saturday between Good Friday and Easter. This is just how he works, in the quiet, sometimes in big moments, but very, very often in the small. In high school, I went through a period of intense doubt about my faith. I went from having a very childlike dependence on the Lord to questioning the existence of Jesus and everything I'd been taught in just a matter of a couple of months. And my junior year, I finally began talking about it with a small group of girls in my youth group and our our youth leader. And all year, It was still, I don't know about any of this. I don't know if it's true. All year I asked questions. They had no answers. They were, oh, I don't know. And at the end of the year, I was talking about something and my youth leader interrupted me and she said, "Uh, hey, Christy, you're talking like you believe again. And I started to protest, but then I stopped because she was right. I couldn't tell you when or what changed and I still had lots of questions, but I again believed that Jesus was the Christ. If your spiritual growth seems absent, if you can't see what God is doing, if your year has felt empty and pointless, if the experiences you had in it seem to have no answers or tidy bow of God taught me X, if it seems like you're just waiting, you're in really good company. Sometimes God works in big moments, but often, It is in just such situations that he is readying the ground. He is still working in your heart for his good, his glory and your good. He's just sneaky and really, really quiet. So it's varied, it's quiet, and third, spiritual growth often looks and feels more like deconstruction or even demolition rather than growth and building. It is like being systematically undone, or a more positive word that we sometimes don't think about the ramifications of, being remade. Because to be remade, you have to be unmade first. And so the spiritual growth that we go through often feels like being put through some kind of meat grinder or wrecking ball to the ground more than it does being built up and being made strong or beautiful. Let's look again at Peter's life. It is challenging to say the least for him when he has the vision in Acts 10 about all peoples being called for salvation. He objects to what he sees, saying, by no means, Lord. Three times this happens. But then he watches as this clearly God-ordained series of events takes place, and he ends up witnessing with awe the Holy Spirit descending upon the Gentiles. And when he reports it to his fellow Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, 
He ends his whole story in defense by just saying, who was I that I could stand in God's way? His entire understanding of the nature of salvation was demolished and crushed and reborn in favor of God's way. But first, the deconstruction had to take place. And this point is maybe a little harder to take than, you know, it's varied, it's quiet, that feels reassuring. This one hurts. It's rough. A few years ago, I watched it in my own life. I was in counseling in the midst of what has been to date the most difficult and painful period of my life. And every area of my life had been undone. And not just undone, but pulverized to ashes. There was nothing left. I have never felt so disoriented or lost, and I desperately wanted to rebuild and reconstruct my framework so that I could somehow grasp control of life again with my mind. But that was not what God did. At the end of counseling, I was no nearer to having figured things out than I was the first day I entered my counselor's office. And in one of our last sessions together, I said to her, I am so much less sure of everything, everything. I have no idea. The stuff we've been working through, what I think about this and this and this, no idea. But I am much more sure of God. I am sure of who he is. I am much more sure he loves me and he sees me and he knows what he's doing. And then I just stopped and looked at her and said, is that like okay? Does that sound right? And she smiled and she said, Christy, that sounds very very right. At that point, I had been demolished and not much had been reborn, and it felt incredibly empty and confusing. I would not have said that I was growing, but that one moment with her in that office, I think, was a statement of the greatest and deepest growth I have ever experienced in my life. I had been deconstructed, and that was very, very good. Finally, spiritual growth has a strange shape. Too often, we equate growth with having worked through and fixed some area of our lives, conquered some sin, achieved something new, figured out that theological quandary, put behind us some old struggle, as though spiritual growth is in the shape of a set of stairs or a mountain we climb and conquer. Growth means bigger and better. But I think a better shape for spiritual growth (laughs) is a downward spiral like this. Because as you go through life, you will start to notice that you keep bumping up against the same several issues or themes again and again. You spiral back by them repeatedly. And it can feel really discouraging because you want to be done with this question or this sin or this struggle until you realize that you're working through it again, but on a deeper level. You have to work through it again, but not necessarily because the work wasn't good before. In fact, maybe because the work was good before, you are now working at a deeper level. There's more depth to plumb there, more darkness to root out, more to learn of God. And we see this downward spiral in the life of Peter too, this circling back around to the same old issues. You might have noticed it already. It seems Peter had a penchant for questioning Jesus and what he was doing. Oh, you think you're going to die? No, I don't think so. Oh, you think I'm going to deny you? That's simply not possible. Oh, you want me to call clean that which is unclean? I think you're confused. But on this last one, it does seem that he was more ready to listen. 
when he willingly goes where the Spirit is leading despite his misgivings and stands his ground when his Jewish brothers say, what did you do? And says instead, why would I stand in the way of God? He's bumping up against that same impulse to challenge God and yet his willingness to listen to him and follow even in the confusion has deepened as well. And that's not to say he was now set, even on the issue of Gentiles. In Galatians 2, Paul speaks of having to confront Peter for distancing himself from Gentile believers under pressure from Jewish believers, even after all of this. As he grew, he did not conquer and become perfect. This is why someone who's been a Christian for a long time does not think of themselves as less sinful typically, but more. I hope you've seen the chart before that shows the Christian life with two lines on it as you age in your walk with the Lord. One line extends down like this and is labeled view of my own sin. This deepens. The other line extends up and says view of God's grace, and this heightens. And connecting the two is the cross, showing that as these two extend away from each other and grow, so does your view of how much you need him and how much he's done. View of your sin, view of God's grace. This is what it should be. If your view of your spiritual growth is that you are becoming so much stronger or so much better, it is not growth you are looking at, but pride. Spiritual growth is not shaped to make you the master. Yes, we conquer in Christ, but it is as we follow him deeper and deeper into that downward spiral of seeing the depths of our own sin and the incredibly more deep riches of his grace. So spiritual growth does not always look like what we will assume it will look like. It's varied, it's quiet, it feels like demolition, it has a strange shape. And you may now be sitting there thinking, so if I feel terrible and all seems dormant, I'm confused, and literally on a downward spiral, that's good? You know, yay. What am I supposed to do with that? I would suggest that we let God work how he likes to work and embrace it, throwing out our own assumptions of what it should be, and I think we can do this in two very basic ways. First, we cannot control it. He must be the one who does it, but that does not mean we don't have a focus or something to do while we lean in dependence on him. The old faithfuls that we hear so much about, prayer, seeking him in his word, fellowship with other believers, these things really do matter. Sometimes we call them spiritual disciplines, and they do take effort, but I think a better name for them is just channels of grace. That's how they function. We don't work at them to be better. We do them to open up the channels which God has already promised to pour out his grace through, to work in. These are the ways that God has given us and said, as he does in Psalm 81, just open wide your mouth and I will fill it. And as we open those avenues in our life, asking, do I see the fruit he has said is the fruit of him in our lives? We tend to look for these big growth moments, but do you see more love for others, more peace, a kinder word? So we embrace this unusual path of spiritual growth by pursuing the avenues of his grace, looking for fruit. But second, as with everything else in the Christian life, we lean on him. He's the one who promises to work in us, and he'll do it. I'll leave you with this. I've been studying Leviticus with a couple of friends this last year, and one of the often repeated phrases that stuck out to me is what happens just before you sacrifice the animal on the altar. The person sacrificing is instructed to lay his hand on the head of the sacrificial animal. 
And it struck me that this act seems so intimate. He leans on the sacrifice to transfer his guilt so gentle and tender, almost like a caress. But then what immediately follows this is kill it. So violent, so sudden, so juxtaposed to the previous intimate act. Lean in, then bloodshed. And as I was reading this over and over in Leviticus, I thought about the true sacrifice, Jesus, in the Levitical picture instead of the animal, like him before the person. Here I am, my head is the sacrifice before you. Lean on it in that tender, intimate way, but I will do it. I will take the punishment. I will bear your sin. And he says the same for all the Christian life, not just the moment when we became his. Lean on me and I will do it. You must come and lean on me. So much more could be said about spiritual growth, but my hope for this morning is that you will pause and reflect, regardless of the dangers, and ask yourself, do my assumptions about spiritual growth match the biblical picture? And that you would be encouraged when you see the biblical picture, reminded that God works no differently in your very heart than he does in the world at large. In varied ways, quiet, unseen times and waiting, disassembling ourselves in a very strange shape. He grows you too in these ways, not so that you will be stronger and better and in less need of him, but so that you will lean more fully on him, asking that he work in you as he's promised to do. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you be with these your children as they journey this spring? Would you shake those who need shaking into examining their assumptions about you? Would you comfort those who fear? And would you remind us all that you know what you're doing, what you're about, and you never cease to work in our hearts, our lives, and your world to bring about your glory and our good. We lean on you. Amen.